Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi, it's Tess Novotny. I'm a producer for Colorado Edition. Before we start, I just want to say thank you for listening. All of the news brought on by the pandemic made the last year feel twice as long. Sometimes working from home gets lonely. But getting to produce Colorado Edition interviews with people from all walks of life has reminded me that I'm never really alone. My goal is to make Colorado Edition reflect the full spectrum of life in Northern Colorado. I want to honor what we've lost and ask hard questions about how we got here. But I also want to celebrate what's to come in our post-pandemic future that is very slowly starting to come into view. We're able to do that thanks to the financial support we get from listeners like you. We know not everyone can afford to take out a membership or make a one-time gift. But if you can, it helps make it possible for everyone to listen and for us to explore all kinds of issues and perspectives on our show. You'll find more information on how to donate at KUNC.org. And thanks again. Now, on to today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll get an update on President Biden's plan to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by September 11th. And we'll hear about a Denver nonprofit that connects roommates and communities across age gaps. Just think about how much richer our life is when we are surrounded by people who are different than us. Plus, we learn how efforts to reform police have stretched across the West. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. After nearly two decades in Afghanistan, America's longest-running war is coming to an end. As President Joe Biden's stated withdrawal date of September 11th looms, humanitarian groups, some members of Congress, and others worry that when the troops are gone, the Afghans who helped them will face retribution. Now the Biden administration is facing renewed pressures to get all of the allies who face threats out of Afghanistan at a time when the State Department is swamped with applications. KUNC military reporter Michael DeYuana has been following all of this for us. He's here with us now. Hey, Michael. Hey. Congressman Jason Crow, former Army Ranger, he is the Democrat who represents the 6th Congressional District here in Colorado. He's sort of leading this effort. What is the specific concern that he and others have for Afghans who helped Americans? Well, it's simply that Afghans who provided technical support to the U.S. or who worked with the military as interpreters, that kind of thing, may be killed by the Taliban when Americans leave. I joined a roundtable on Zoom this week hosted by Crow where groups discuss the situation. I spoke with an Afghan ally there. His name is Mohammed Azim. He worked for U.S. aid and the U.S. embassy and came to the United States in 2014. Azim is in touch with his family in Afghanistan, and he says there's fear over what the Taliban will do once troops leave. The Taliban look very, very civilized, and they pledge that they would respect the human rights, the women rights, and things like that. But as an Afghan, we don't trust Taliban. We know that in social media, they are saying, let the invaders leave the country, then we know what to do with the traitors. And we know that they are going to do it. Now, the context for this is the American drawdown, which Crow is watching very closely. He describes the drawdown this way. 
what you're going to see is an, actually an, an, an increase in combat forces for a very short period of time, because those who are there right now have to transition their responsibilities from security uh, to actually doing the withdrawal, uh, moving equipment, packing up the bases, shutting things down. Well, it sounds like the military is going to be pretty active there in Afghanistan. Yeah, and at a time of a very tenuous peace, under a deal with former President Trump, which the Taliban signed, troops were supposed to be out May 1st. Well, <laughs> that's this weekend. And obviously, President Biden's withdrawal timeline of September 11th, as you said, misses the deadline. All of this adds uncertainty, but it's also one last opportunity for Afghans who worked for U.S. interests to get out. I asked Crow what will happen to those who don't. The answer is, is simple and, and brutal. Uh, they will be killed. Many of them will be killed. Uh, we know that because that's what's happened in the past. It's happened in Iraq. It's happened in uh, Syria. Uh, and it's happened many times in Afghanistan. Now, Crow thinks America has a responsibility to help these Afghans. They knew they were taking risks in helping Americans. And that's why there's a program to bring them to the U.S. if as the State Department says, they have experienced or are experiencing an ongoing serious threat as a consequence of their employment. Do you have numbers for how many Afghan interpreters and, and sort of other allies who face threats could be left behind? I don't have exact numbers, but Afghans who were employed a minimum of two years at any point since October 7th, 2001, when the U.S. became involved in Afghanistan, can apply for what's called a special immigrant visa. The State Department says 26,000 500 of those visas for Afghan principal applicants have been issued, but there are a lot of applicants trying to get in. That's according to Adam Bates, who is with the nonprofit International Refugee Assistance Project. So that current backlog is somewhere between 17,000 and 19,000 Afghans who've been sitting for years in this in this backlog. Bates says the applications have moved slowly, regardless of presidential administration, but that the Biden administration has at least signaled some commitment to ramping up the pace. But we haven't yet seen seen it on the ground. And, and again, with this kind of September um, backstop looming over this conversation, we, we don't just need the program to get back up to speed. We need it to, to kick into hyperdrive. By hyperdrive, he says the special immigrant visa program should be expanded to make way for any of those who haven't yet decided to leave, but are now reassessing that and may apply. And it all adds up to a situation that could overload the State Department's ability to respond. So Bates's organization says the Biden administration should be prepared for large scale evacuations of at risk Afghans, the kind not seen in a generation. One idea would be to airlift refugees to U.S. military bases like one in Guam. Uh, Crow says that option should be on the table. We're looking at the Guam option, which has been used twice in the history of our country uh, after Vietnam uh, and then in the mid-90s uh, with respect to the Kurds. Other ideas include ramping up diplomacy with other countries to increase protections for Afghans. 
So what's next? So Crow is heading up a working group in Congress that aims to engage the Biden administration. The group consists of 10 Democrats and six Republicans. They wrote a plea, a letter to Biden telling him his administration and Congress, quote, must move swiftly to prioritize and expedite life-saving measures for U.S. allies. And have they heard back yet from the Biden administration? Well, Crow told me that he has had a few conversations with high-ranking officials, including some in the military, but he is still waiting for word from the president. Michael DeUena covers military issues for KUNC. You can find more of his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Michael, thanks for your reporting on this. You're welcome. Apple recently announced it will expand its workforce in Boulder to 700 jobs over the next few years. Local development officials are calling the expansion a big win, especially as Colorado continues to work itself free from the pandemic-induced economic downturn. Here with more on what this announcement means for the region's status as a high-tech hub is Chris Wood, editor and publisher of Biz West. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Erin. Let's start by putting the Boulder jobs into context. This is part of a larger nationwide investment that Apple is making. Apple put out a press release Monday morning announcing a major investment nationwide amounting to $430 billion that they will be investing around the country. That expansion will total 20,000 jobs over the next five years. And it will reach a lot of different communities around the U.S. For example, the company plans a new $1 billion campus in North Carolina's Research Triangle with 3,000 jobs. And they're expanding their presence in San Diego, taking employment there to 5,000. There are lots of other expansions that they're doing around the country, including in Boulder, where, as you noted, they are expanding to 700 jobs. Well, Apple isn't the only tech firm with a presence in the Boulder area. What is it about Boulder and other cities here along the Front Range that is so attractive to these big tech companies like Apple? I think it's a combination of things. Uh, Certainly the presence of the research universities such as CU and CSU, uh, as well as federal labs uh, is is one draw. Of course, Boulder and Jefferson County and, and Larimer are uh, big centers for federal laboratories. The software engineering talent is another draw. There are a lot of uh, very skilled workers that are here. Uh, there, of course, is competition for those workers, but uh, there is significant engineering talent uh, along the front range. Uh, But I think also you can't discount the significant startup activity that we see here, particularly in the Boulder area and now uh, increasingly in Metro Denver and along the Front Range as a whole. Uh, Many of these big tech companies made their first foray into the Boulder area through acquisition of existing companies. And that was the case with Google. Uh, It acquired a local startup called SketchUp back in 2006, sort of a 3D modeling software. Twitter acquired a a local company called Ganip in 2014. It's uh, basically a social media uh, analytics company. And Amazon acquired uh, Canvas Robotics in 2019. Uh, That is a robotic system for warehouses, which of course makes perfect sense for Amazon. So a lot of these big tech companies have been lured here by acquiring 
local startups that have emerged in, in Boulder and elsewhere, and then growing growing from there. So it's it's a pretty uh, a big lure for these companies uh, to look at the, the successful startups that we've had in the area. Lots of people are enthusiastic about Apple's announcement, uh, understandably so, but I imagine this also raises a few issues. Uh, notably, we know the Boulder area is already pretty crowded with lots of traffic. Can you talk about some of the downsides to this growth and what local leaders might be thinking about to help mitigate some of the impacts? Any announcement of a big jobs increase in Boulder can prove controversial. You know, most communities would embrace big, big job announcements. And and that is true in Boulder to, to an extent, but there is a, a circle within Boulder that doesn't like to hear these announcements. And the reason is, as you cited, crowding and, and traffic, uh, housing prices uh, being another. Uh, pre-pandemic, Boulder had at least 50,000 inbound commuters each day. And, and I had even heard that it might be as high as 70,000 inbound commuters each day. So that obviously brings traffic issues. And it has led to a discussion in Boulder that you don't really hear in a lot of other cities. It's called the Jobs Housing imbalance. So some believe that Boulder simply has too many jobs and not enough housing stock. And that has uh, certainly drived up the cost of housing in, uh, as, as you know, a very heated housing market today. When you look at Boulder, its median sales price hit a record $1.55 million in March. And that only feeds the debate of this uh, jobs housing imbalance. Boulder over the years has implemented measures to try to address uh, uh, some of those issues. They have affordable housing linkage fees for for new projects that come in. They have to pay into an affordable housing uh, program. And the city has flirted over the years with a head tax on employees, but that has been uh, obviously very controversial with the business community and it hasn't happened so far. But uh, this discussion of the jobs housing inbound Balance uh, will continue in Boulder uh, without a doubt. Chris Wood is editor and publisher at BizWest. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Aaron. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Black people in America continue to be killed at the hands of police, even after the conviction of an ex-police officer for the murder of George Floyd. This has brought police reform efforts into sharper focus. KUNC's Robin Vincent reports on how a reckoning with racism and police brutality has stretched beyond Colorado and reverberated through the region. New Mexico resident Elaine Maestas says if you were in need, her sister Alicia Lucero was there. Even if it was like the last of her money, the last $20, it didn't matter if you were a friend, a family member, or somebody that she just met, she would help you out. The sisters were close. Lucero was a loving aunt to Maestas' children and a caregiver for her father when he became ill. But after she got in a car accident... We really noticed a drastic, drastic change that she was starting to not really be herself. Doctors found Lucero had a brain tumor. She underwent surgery and was receiving treatments. But that's when she began having panic attacks, seizures, and acting erratically. One night, Lucero's cousin called the cops after Lucero hit her uncle in the head. Police responded and escalated the situation. I remember my uncle calling me and and he said, Elaine, like, I need you to sit down. And I knew right when he said that, like, something was wrong with Alicia. On July 22nd, 2019, Bernalillo County Sheriff's deputies shot Alicia Lucero 21 times. 
The police report paints a picture of chaos. Lucero, at 4 feet 11 inches, reportedly emerged from her trailer carrying a knife after officers repeatedly commanded her to come out. The report says police tased Lucero, but she kept going. Lucero's cousin, meanwhile, says he never saw the knife. My sister's death was completely preventable. And the sad thing is, is that her life was taken by the men that were called to help her. People in the Mountain West are killed by police at a rate more than one and a half times the national average, with New Mexico at the top of the list. That's something Maestas points to often in her advocacy. She's become a vocal police reform proponent. But, she says, police in the state have been resistant to change. Here's New Mexico Police Union leader Sergeant Jose Carrasco pushing back against reforms introduced in the most recent legislative session. If these bills pass the way you guys have them, there will be no law enforcement left. Among Carrasco's concerns was the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. It did pass. The new law removes qualified immunity, a legal doctrine that protected police from civil lawsuits. New Mexico's Speaker of the House, Brian Egolf, was a co-sponsor. He says efforts to work with police on reform have largely failed because they refuse to recognize the problem. You've got to call it out. You have to acknowledge the problem. But you also need to call out unfair criticism from law enforcement. Egolf points to a Department of Justice investigation that found Albuquerque Police Department routinely uses excessive force. But DOJ says at least one recommendation has, quote, fallen on deaf ears. Over in Nevada, State Senator Dallas Harris took a page from Colorado's reform playbook to write several measures. The black lawmaker points to policing's racist past to help explain its problematic present. Police units in the United States were born of slave patrols. No more than 60 or so years ago, it was a police officer's job to pull me off of a lunch counter. After George Floyd's murder, Nevada legislators banned chokeholds and required officers to intervene when another cop is using excessive force. Now Harris is sponsoring bills that include measures like data collection and qualified immunity, to name a few. She says Nevada's historic protests last year signal that... The citizens of Nevada are with me. Across the region, activists have precipitated cultural shifts, and they say the battle has just begun. In Utah, where big protests transpired after Floyd's killing, Lex Paul of Black Lives Matter Utah says the state's recent legislative session left her disappointed. I don't want to be a negative Nelly over here, but there are just two things that we wanted. Utah passed some reforms this session, and one in particular that policing experts extol, data collection. But Paul wanted independent oversight and the prompt release of body cam footage. Chris Burbank is with the Center for Policing Equity and a former Salt Lake City chief of police. He agrees with Paul that these reforms don't go far enough, and he wants fundamental change. Why do we make traffic stops? Why do we arrest misdemeanors? Right? These are the types of things that if you no longer engage in that behavior, you no longer have the bias. Burbank says we've tried to make ending racism a hearts and minds issue to no avail. So instead, he says we need to limit the activities police respond to, like Alicia Lucero's mental health crisis. The criminal justice system has never solved the problem of drug 
or alcohol addiction or mental health or homelessness. But Burbank points out those problems still tend to occupy the bulk of police attention all across the nation. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. We know that the last year was especially burdensome for older adults. Not only were they highly susceptible to the coronavirus, but many also found themselves in isolated living situations, sometimes without some of the assistance they require. And according to some, this wasn't just a pandemic problem, but a community problem. And the best way to help our elderly neighbors is to make sure that they are actually our neighbors, maybe even our housemates. Allison Jokovsky is the executive director and founder of Sunshine Home Share, a nonprofit based in the Denver metro area that aims to make homes and communities more diverse when it comes to age. And she joins us now. Allison, welcome to Colorado Edition. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So what exactly is home sharing for people who are not familiar with this? And what does it look like at Sunshine Home Share? Home sharing is really just that simple idea that you have space in your home and you rent a room. For Sunshine Home Share, which is a supported home sharing model, it really then sort of takes it to the next level where we're adding screening and background checks and a social work intake to make that process safe and thoughtful in order to really get to that goodness of fit match. Who comes to you primarily seeking to share their home and then who comes looking to move into a home? I would say it just runs the gambit. When you think about the people looking for housing, affordable housing right now, We have millennials who are young professionals that maybe could live with four people their own age, but instead they say, I could give back and I can save money. And then we also get a lot of people who are older adults themselves, and they are on wait lists for senior buildings that are low income. I don't know how many times a day we get that call that's like, my landlord just keeps doubling my rent and it's more than my social security and I don't know what to do. Then on the home provider side, I would say it's just as wide. You have the younger homeowner who maybe is working or newly retired, and all of a sudden they've had that income drop, and they're like, I can't pay my property taxes. And then about a third of our home providers are actually over 90. That's where you get the person saying, you know, my mom's doing great. She might be frail or have a walker, but she's doing good. But it would be really great to have someone who wants to make dinner a couple nights a week and would want to watch a ball game. So then that's kind of putting all those pieces in place to really be able to help them age in place. Now, how do you match homeowners and home seekers together? What's that process? It's slow going. One of the things about home sharing is it's not emergency housing or that I have to be out tomorrow. We get an application into our office and then the person either comes into our office and we do a full social work assessment And we're really talking about likes and dislikes and how do you feel about marijuana and pets and guests and values and what's important to you and really getting to know them. After that, we're kind of looking at both sides and we're saying, who wants to live in this part of town and can pay this much money and is willing to help with these things? And then we call them and we say, would you like to meet Mary? Would you like to meet Joe? 
And so then what happens is the staff go out and we do what's called a match meeting. And we are actually there with them when they meet because everything that we do is from that lens of safety. We are pulling background checks, we're checking references, right? We're doing all of those things. After that, we say, bring in family, bring in someone who knows you, right? Let them meet this person and they will call us and say, we're ready to do the trial match. And the trial is actually a two week where they give it a go. And then we go out every quarter and we make sure everything's still going okay. And sometimes it's like, you know, needing to make sure that that service exchange and that rent is still feeling equitable so that the match still feels balanced. How did the pandemic impact Sunshine Home Share? I'm wondering how it impacted both the need for homes as a lot of people, you know, lost jobs and were facing eviction, but also probably made it harder for people to move into new places. The amount of support that our existing matches needed doubled from having extra funds to pay rent to the home provider because the home seeker lost their job to now I can't grocery shop and I can't go out. And so the other person needing to step in. And so what does that look like? It just took a lot of care management on our end to help our matches stay matched. But the one thing that I think really hit home on the community level is loneliness and isolation is an even bigger problem than I think we ever realized. We knew that it was a problem, but this just made it blow up. Which brings me to something else I want to get to, um, which is that, you know, home sharing doesn't just impact the makeup of a home itself. It can also impact the dynamics of an entire community. Is it part of Sunshine Home Share's goals to make communities more diverse when it comes to age? And if so, why do you believe it's important to have age-diverse neighborhoods? Just think about how much richer our life is when we are surrounded by people who are different than us. And different is not just race and it's not just income, but it's age. And we are such an age-segregated society. And a lot of our homeowners, they are low income, they are minorities, they are older, they've lived in our neighborhood for 40 years. So they bring the history of the neighborhood, they raise their families in that neighborhood. And the neighborhood is being gentrified around them. You know, if we really did a good job, right, we checked on our older neighbor, we shoveled their walk, we asked them if they needed anything from the grocery store, you may not even necessarily need our program, but we just don't do that. I just think our life is so much richer when we bring in those people who are different and different means age. Allison Jokowski is the executive director and founder of Sunshine Home Share Colorado. You can find more information at KUNC.org. Allison, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.